Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So for today's show, we've got another exciting episode uh, lined up, uh, a very uh, deep technical discussion with Dr. Chris Tai, who is the founder and managing director of a company called Electrical Cooling Solutions, um, who are very, very involved in uh, modeling, simulation, design, development, and things like that to do with high-performance uh, motors. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And um, I just wonder um, if we could start with a bit of a background on you, Chris, um, you know, how, how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Yeah, good question. Um, so I, I guess it all started when I studied mechanical engineering at the University of Nottingham. Uh, so I got my, my master's in engineering in 2007. Uh, during that undergraduate period, uh, studying mechanical engineering, I found I had a particular interest in thermodynamics, fluid dynamics and, and heat transfer which, which seemed to be contrary to my, my fellow students. They like the other subjects, but this this is the one that resonated with me the most. Um, as we got to the end, a lot of the people in my course, they were heading off to work, but I think I felt I wanted to pursue further research and understanding on these subjects. So I uh, knocked on a few doors to see what, what PhDs were offered at the time. And uh, there were two laid out on the table. One was around internal combustion engines, actually. I took a course in IC engines in my, in my fourth year. And the other was on cooling of power electronics on aircraft. Uh, at that time, I had very, very little understanding of the electronic and electrical engineering world. Uh, so it was kind of a, an, an unusual one for me. But I had a chat with Professor Steve Pickering, who was the, the academic, and kind of got to know more about that topic, topic which was on managing short, high current spikes yeah. uh, for power electronics on aircraft. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, such as lightning strikes and overcurrents, and that sounded pretty interesting. I like yeah, nothing transfer, trivial. So I kind of went, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nothing trivial at all. No, no pressure. Yeah. Uh, so I chose that, and and actually, with thinking about it, the, the IC engines and this this topic that took me into the electronics and electrical engineering world, and how pivotal a decision that was in my life, given where I am now. Uh, it's quite interesting to think back how these two technologies have taken a, a very different route since yeah. maybe they would have converged back at back at this point somehow with uh with the ic engines and, and adopting uh, electric technology yeah um so that that then went on to do a phd for for four years so that was on really modeling heat transfer within power electronics oh, okay. uh, and as i said these are very very short transients and, and what became apparent at the time is 100 milliseconds is an eternity in the electrical engineering world. So <laughs> current can come or go. Uh, and, but for, from a thermal point of view, this is this is a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, but but for electronics, it's you, you know. Uh, Electrons move quite quickly. Yeah. A lot of things can happen in the 100 milliseconds. <laughs> yeah. But from a thermal point of view, uh, if we think about a, a typical stack from a power electronics, you've got the device and the substrate underneath and then typically a base plate and, and underneath you have 
conventional cooling, liquid cooling. Yeah. But it takes about, it takes more than 10 milliseconds for the heat to get from that device to the liquid cooling. Yeah. So if you've got a 10 millisecond pulse, that coolant's doing nothing to help reduce the temperature of the device within that time. So you have to think about some other needs. And uh, we were looking at putting heat reservoirs because it's not quite a, a heat sink, heat reservoir right on top of the device. So as this heat is generated in a very small time, it kind of gets dissipated into this heat sink or heat reservoir, as I've called it. <laughs> uh, it's held there until the pulse is over and then it dissipates back down to the liquid coolant. So you're just trying to store that heat for, for while we see this lightning strike or overcurrent fault and the electrons decide whether it's uh, it's a lightning strike and we just have to ride through it or whether something's broken and we need to switch off. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was quite interesting. And that's where really I started modeling heat transfer. So we looked at some of the commercial software available and, and given the, the, the nature of the topic, we, we kind of need to model transient heat, transient thermal conduction down to sort of one microsecond level just to see how that heat dissipates in very small uh, electrical engineering sort of time frames. Yeah. Uh, we also have anisotropic conductivities um, with different materials that we're looking at to see how beneficial that was. We have tried to simulate the losses, which are temperature dependent, depending on how the resistance. So there's a lot of complex things that's going on and, and none of the commercial software at the time we felt was, was suitable for doing this. So that's where I started coding as well. So developing these thermal solvers to be able to model niche things like this. So this is a very, very niche topic that we we're looking at, but it gave me a good understanding and, and different transient solving schemes. Uh, and implementing code that's, that's then used to actually generate results and do some proper engineering analysis of a, a thermal problem. And that is, you know, often with colleagues in the past, we always would talk about sort of um, design of, of e-machines and power electronics for um, automotive applications in particular is a thermal problem, you know, in, in the, often solving the thermal challenges kind of dominates um, and, and drives a lot of activity and behavior and component specification and an awful lot of what you do is, is all about managing heat um, and, and heat flows within the, the device and, and, uh, and, and controlling all of that to within an acceptable level. So it, it's a key part. Um, it's interesting how you kind of came into that juncture because, you know, typically it would be seen as being very separate, you know, sort of uh -huh. um, the the mechanical engineers at one side of the building and the uh, electronics guys at the other. So were you, were you getting yeah. sort of a good insight into how power electronics modules were being built and the sort of challenges and issues that were coming about all the way back then? Uh, definitely. Uh, I spent a bit of my time, I suppose, more on a device level, looking at how MOSFETs and IGPTs worked with the, the different gates and, and uh, the, the draining of the source. I'm still no expert, you can tell. Uh, but we're really looking at it from a from a, a device point of view. So where you know you've got this tiny device, which is only sort of I don't know 10 mil by 10 mil and, and maybe a mil thick. But actually, you want to know exactly where in that device the heat's being generated. Is it evenly distributed, or or is it just in the top slither by the draining source? For most problems, that's completely irrelevant if you're looking at steady state. But when you're looking at what happens in that first 10 microseconds yeah. or 100 microseconds of a heat pulse. That, that, that's critical to see how it 
because it's dissipating just within the device itself at that time. And then it goes through either down to the substrate or, or in different directions. But that's an interesting, I mean, that you sort of summarized there. One of the challenges I always had, you know, back back in the day when, when we were sort of doing early work in electrification was trying to get people to think about things as non-steady state mm -hmm. because an awful lot of our industry was was all about modeling things at a steady state condition. And even sort of a lot of so-called transient models were effectively a chain of steady state models stuck together. Um, and it didn't really show you a true transient condition. But for a for a driveline application, it is transient. I mean, it's almost never yeah. in a steady state uh, condition. Even when people think it's steady state, it really isn't steady state because um, things are things change all the time. But so, so driveline applications are highly, highly transient. Probably not as transient as a lightning strike, I would guess. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> but still, still quite a transient uh, application. So, good, um, a good sort of start. So, so then you you did your PhD. Um, where mm -hmm. what happened to you after that? Uh, so PhD, yeah, I was on power electronics. Uh, I I went to work at um, Cummins, uh, Cummins Generator Technologies. So, oh, okay. a big label company. But to, at the time, they had a big. Uh, CGT, as we call it, uh, the, the plant was in Stamford. So they had the engineering office, as well as a lot of manufacturing capability within um, in Stamford. So I went to work uh, there uh, within this company as a, a thermal engineer. And that was really about developing thermal engineering capability across that, across the global sites. So that the main hub of the, the engineering world for the generator um, arm of Cummins was, was based in Stamford. But at this time, you could really see that thermal engineering was starting to be taken seriously. If you look at the work that they'd done previously as a company, uh, newer just before it was it was Cummins, very little was paid attention had been paid to thermal. It was kind of an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, you know, put a bigger fan on it. You know, you know if it's not <laughs> if it's not uh, if it's running too hard. Yeah, there's big. I think so. A lot of people would know Cummins obviously for engines. Maybe some don't mm -hmm. realise. Ironically, they changed that division quite heavily just as they were going into electrification on the other side of the business. But they had a big um, competency in electrical machine design and manufacture in the UK for generator sets. But like mm -hmm. you know, like you say, a typical gen set, it, power density is not all that important. They're quite large mm -hmm. machines. They're sort of air cooled and 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 quite yeah. uh, quite different to what you would find in a traction application. What sort of things were you trying to do there in terms of, um, you know, thermal optimization in that kind of equipment? Sure, exactly. So, so these are through through flow air cooled generators. So we've got an air, a fan on the end that's pulling the air through, uh, and really we're looking at new product development and and product improvements. So some of these designs, electromagnetically developed back in the seventies and mechanically not changed a lot since then. These things are designed to last a certain number of years, about 20 years. So we kind of get to the point where <laughs> you're starting to understand what the real lifetime of these machines are. Yeah. So a lot of it is kind of, okay, we have this standard product. How can we improve it? How can we get a bit more lifetime? But also looking at efficiency. So, and a lot of the applications of these generators were for off-grid, um, either diesel or, or coupled to a diesel or, or gas engine. Yeah. Uh, so, so where you know, in remote areas in, in parts of the world, whereas they're running 24-7, providing just a constant power. Uh, and these, so they're coupled to an engine which is burning diesel or, or, or gas. And so if you're looking for 
just small efficiency gains, a 0.1% efficiency gain, depending on the size of the generator, uh, equates to sort of thousands of litres of fuel saving over a year. Yeah. Now, customers look at that from a financial point of view, you know, with the, the prices, <laughs> yeah. especially the volatile prices. So they want to save money on, on fuel, but also from an environmental reason, just burning less fuel, you know, it's a significant saving. So, and 0.1% doesn't sound like a lot, but these bigger generators, they might be running at 90, 96, 97% efficiency already. Yeah. Um, so 0.1% saving is, 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 is relatively significant. And that a lot comes down to thermal. So if you've got a better thermal, you know, cooling system, and if you can improve the cooling system whilst running at the same power output, you're running at a lower temperature. And yeah. if the temperature is lower, your electrical resistance is lower, so you're generating fewer losses because of uh, these are ohmic losses, yeah. which are the the main heat dissipation within uh, these types of generators. Uh, so if you can do that. But also we talk about fans as well. Okay. These things are, are fan-powered. Just wondering uh, that, we under- reducing yeah. the fan power. Yeah. Exactly. So if you can bring that down. So the, the fan affinity laws, which gives us good engineering rules of thumb about how to design a fan. Mm. The, the ratio of the diameter of the fan is proportional to airflow rate to the power of three, but it's also proportional to power to the power of five. Yeah. So I, I think if you increase your fan diameter by 16%, you're almost doubling the, the windage losses yeah. on that fan. So if you can optimize that fan, reduce the diameter, get it pulling the same amount of airflow through, or in many cases, a lot of that air that's being pulled through the generator is not doing much cooling at all. It's going through uh, big passages on the outside. It's not picking up too much heat. So you can reduce the total airflow through the machine by and having a much more efficient fan. Uh, that reduces the windage losses, which is another component of your efficiency. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's fascinating. So, so um, and then did you go straight from Cummins to setting up your own business or how did you come about that's because it's a pretty big leap to take from a global <laughs> company like Cummins to yeah so two years at Cummins was felt like um felt lucky enough I think it, it had very much had the, the feel of a, a big American corporate company uh, and some people thrive in that environment but yeah I think I I like to work in a more siloed environment I suppose and then have a bit more freedom uh, in terms of what we're doing. So we did a lot of work on thermal modeling in, in Cummins as well. And a, again, some of the commercial software was not uh, ideal for what we wanted to do, particularly if we wanted to be innovative. We we needed something what we could do some thermal modeling and quick thermal predictions uh, more easily and incorporate innovative features. So a lot of the work I did there was developing their in-house. They're still using today their thermal resistance tool uh, for predicting temperatures. So I had a good grounding at that point for simulation using CFD as well uh, for, for predicting airflow. Um, so from there, I, I kind of took two almost parallel strands. I went, I went back to the University of, of Nottingham as a researcher. So this is 2013. Um, but at the same time, after creating, making a couple of connections at CGT, kind of started electrical cooling solutions, ECS. So I think it, technically it was incorporated in at the end of 2012. Uh, but at that point, it was just kind of a bit of work that I was doing on the side, whilst most of my work was actually as a researcher at the University of Nottingham. Right. So tell us about uh, electrical cooling solutions and, and what you do now, because it's uh, obviously yeah. 
Um, I was looking at my watch to try and work out a number of years in my head there. That was a bit stupid of me, but you know, um, yeah, 22 minus 12 is 10. I can do yeah, that yeah. math just about. Uh, so yeah, go on. <laughs> well, so, well, uh, 10 years, but, but, but really, we, I started operating ECS full-time in 2018, so Technically, I think of it as a, a, a three and a half year old company okay. now, rather than a, a ten years, uh, which um, pr probably suits the maturity of the company a, a little bit better. So we specialise in um, thermal computer simulations, modelling, and applying analytical techniques for for electric drives. So we we design and optimise thermal management solutions for for motors and generators, which we've discussed, uh, power electronics and power converters as well. Uh, and also batteries. So uh, anything that incorporates an electric drive system, which is sort of power hungry and, and generates a lot of heat. Uh, and we also look at the, the system integration of all of these things together. Uh, so some of our work is improving the thermal performance of, of hardware, which is already on the market. Uh, that might be resolving thermal issues or uh, improving performance to make that product more competitive in, in the marketplace as, as newer products come on, which are uh, on paper, uh, better specifications. But we also do a lot of research and analysis of advanced cooling methods for, for high performance and breakthrough technology products as well. Um, so still do some work with the University of Nottingham, which is more on, a, on an R&D level. But fundamentally, uh, we, we do specialize in simulation and, and modeling uh, side of thermal engineering. And you do that as a, as a sort of service? So someone would come to you with a particular problem mm -hmm. and what's your approach absolutely so people come to us sometimes uh, often with a problem more often than not which, which <laughs> perhaps underlies the the, the the problem from 10 or 20 years ago in the way that thermal management was considered within the industry but yeah come with a problem or often uh, come with a, a design project as well saying we, we wanted to develop this new product the number of thermal engineers on the market and available in the electric drives industry, uh, and this is one of the uh, another underlying problem. It, the number of people with really, let's say, formal training and have a good, solid understanding are probably not sufficient compared to the demand. You know, the number of companies that are developing. So a lot of the time, there are mechanical engineers and electromagnetic engineers running thermal simulations, yeah. uh, and that's great. And the industry needs this, but but sometimes there's a uh, they need a validation check or they need somebody with a bit more experience to come in and, and do some modeling for them. So yeah, often or more often than not, it's someone with a new development project, they need someone to come in and do some thermal calculations, predictions. You know, how how hot is our product going to run? Yeah. Um, how can we reduce the temperature? How can we get more power out of this? How can we, you know, we want to remove uh, some cost from this existing product. Generally, people want to take copper out yeah. <laughs> because it's expensive. So, um, but obviously, not wanting to reduce the the power output. Uh, so, so a myriad of, of, of problems as well. And sometimes there's a high performance and innovative products that are coming where yeah. uh, maybe there's not a product on the market which is quite uh, operating to the same the power density that they want, for example. So. It's not really a copy paste of an existing product. They've got to think a little bit outside the box, and yeah. and, and first and foremost, you've got to make sure the thermal is working. Because if you don't, <laughs> your product won't last long. 
Yeah, yeah, I've had a few of those in the past. Uh, <laughs> the working and not working varieties. Um, so, <laughs> is that predominantly then electrical machines, um, or are you also is it is it power electronics as well, or other? I mean, I mean, you know, are you doing other things, or is it are you pre- pre- predominantly e-machine? Predominantly uh, e-machines is what what we work with. That's where our existing network is perhaps strongest. Right. Uh, we do do power electronics with products as well. <laughs> Uh, and a lot where it meets in the middle, integrated drives are a, a common theme now. So instead okay. of having a separate drive using sticking the power electronics in or around uh, the motor and trying to have a, a single package, uh, that is great. But it does uncover uh, a lot of thermal issues because you're trying to cool the same amount of heat in, in a much smaller packaging. So they do meet in the middle. And uh, more recently as well, we're doing battery thermal management, which is uh, another topic, um, which is, is it's highly important, especially with uh, e-motors and the EV sector. Uh, battery is one of the technologies which is developing technologically, probably quicker than the, the motors or the, the drives. Yeah. The batteries are uh, typically especially fussy, you know, the Goldilocks mm-hmm. effect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, motors are quite nice in that sense because they don't really mind being cold. The sort of the colder the better, uh, and and your yeah, electronics. That's right. But uh, mm-hmm. batteries don't really like being cold and don't want to be hot. I always, I was I was doing something the other day where they were talking about cooling in battery packs. I was like, it really isn't cooling. It's thermal management. Thermal you know, management because mm-hmm. being cold is as much of a problem as being too hot. Um, and and so just to sort of dive a, a little bit deeper, because in my head, you know, obviously a lot of simulation tools out there like you can do um you know machine drive uh simulation electromagnetic simulation and a big part of the standard tools out there is the, the thermal uh sort of characterization um of of what's happening in your in your mm-hmm. electromagnetic system so um how does how, you know how does what you do differ from from that to, to, you know so if someone's sitting at their desk and they're yeah using one of those standard um, design tools there's you know there's a mm-hmm. couple out there um you get those thermals and those heat maps and stuff and what what how do you do what do you do differently yeah that's a that's a really good question so there are there are different degrees of let's say resolution which you can conduct thermal analysis a lot of these tools are doing the, the maybe the, the lowest end they want to produce a thermal calculation very quickly so they're using something like a a lump parameter or thermal resistance model uh, with perhaps not so so many nodes and each node represents a certain part of the, the motor. So you're predicting temperatures at maybe 20 locations mm. uh, also within the motor, uh, which is good to give you a good idea. Uh, but underlying these calculations are a lot of assumptions and understanding what assumptions are being made in your thermal calculation is, is highly important. Some of the packages give you options to go in and tune them, but that requires you to understand what values to put in, what assumptions. You know, if you're going to override the defaults, you need to have a better idea of a value to to change. One common example is the heat transfer coefficient. So any interaction with with a solid, with with you know a conduction area, so that's the motor with any liquid cooling or or air cooling, mm. air and liquid very complex to predict so we use cfd for that but cfd takes a long time so these calculations assume a heat transfer coefficient so how 
assume how well that surface is being cooled, that body is being cooled, yeah. uh, and the, the liquid. Uh, and they're using underlying correlations most of the time. Some of these correlations were developed, actually, some of them as long as goes to the 1920s, I think. Uh, certainly, I think the 1950s and 60s, there were a lot of work done. Uh, they're still being used today, even though if you look at the speed of operation, uh, so high-speed machines, small diameter, uh, different things, they're, they're not necessarily applicable. So they're very good for getting a good idea of, of you know, whether you're 300 degrees or, or 100 degrees, if you're on that right ballpark. But, but that's really all they're good for. Right. And you can't be too confident with these tools um, to, to the exact degree. Um, so you've probably got a, a quite a large margin of error. Good for cooling concepts. So we have our own thermal resistance tool that we've developed in-house. Um, we we have our own tool because we were able to incorporate clever design features. So if we're, we want to simulate a, or, or model a particular type of cooling, you know, if it's a new air channel uh, through uh, a stage or, or a type of vent or, or, or something, just anything innovative, we can then incorporate that. But I suppose inherently, if there's a, a drop-down option or a tick box in a in a piece of commercial software uh, to to model some sort of cooling, then inherently it's not innovative because someone's thought of it before and yeah. anyone with the software can model it. Yeah. So that's one key difference. Um, we also do a lot of CFD, uh, and CFD is is really important if you want to do make thermal predictions more accurately because that's where you start to simulate the the air, whether it's internal air or, or air cooled, for example, in the example of the generators, how the air is passing through the generator, or, or uh, an aerospace machine, if you've got direct liquid pooling, so you're pushing oil or uh, through the machine that's in direct contact with the windings and th going through the status lock, you need to be need to simulate that in quite a lot of detail because the heat transfer coefficient is varying a lot within the machine. So depending yeah. on you know where, where the turbulence is occurring. So you need to model that directly to get good temperature predictions out. And that's where CFD comes in. And CFD, um, it's been around a long time, obviously, and there are many commercial packages that you can do it. We find there, this is where one of the biggest technical barriers come for, for normal companies, because setting up a CFD model is is, is non-trivial. You really need to understand how to set your model up what sort of mesh to apply is very, very fussy with respect to the mesh that you put in. Yeah. Um, unlike something like mechanical or electromagnetic, where you have a, you kind of just chuck a mesh in and it generally it works. Uh, the the mesh or CFD needs to be very specific, and then also the settings. So, do you need a compressible or an incompressible sole, or what turbulence model to run? You know, is my solution converged? CFD will always generally give you an answer, but to know that you've got the right answer requires a lot of the knowledge. So, so you're doing like these sort of really detailed coupled models, and mm -hmm. I guess is this sort of going back to almost the earlier point where older electrical machine sort of development, industrial electrical machines, they weren't all that power dense, and had a lot of thermal mass in the machine anyway, and you know so. It, and efficiencies were in a different place to where they are now. So now we're doing mobile applications. So power density yeah. is everything. Mm -hmm. um, and super cost, there's huge volumes, lots of cost optimization work. So we're trying to 
squeeze every last cent out of it and every last watt yeah. of performance uh, into it. Is, is it that kind of, because we're in that real sort of, mm-hmm. um, in, into that much higher performance regime for machines that it's all becoming much more critical? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. As, as you want to provide cooling, so direct cooling, you really need to look at this on a much more detailed level. I suppose going back, in, and as you were saying, I was thinking back in the 70s, they didn't have a CFD or they had it on a very basic um, level. And certainly you couldn't run a proper CFD model purely because of the computational power uh, available. I think when I started at, at Cummins, as an example, that was 20. 11 we could run cfd meshes going up to maybe 10 million cells which isn't a huge amount if you're trying to simulate mm. a, a motor uh, sorry a generator yeah uh, yeah throw through so you have to be really let's say you need to budget your mesh you need to be really strict about where you're putting cells now we're running cfd within the company so we're we're operating on the cloud uh, we're running sort of 200 300 million cell meshes uh, without really thinking about it. <laughs> wow, <okay. laughs> uh, so, so com- certainly computational power is, is no longer an issue. Uh, for a long time, particularly the early part of my career, that, that's where it was an issue. I suppose as of a few years ago, particularly as technologies and CFD, you can start running it on the cloud. Your computational power is, is all, it's almost infinite, mm. which does open the door to be able to run these CFD models uh, in a lot more detail. Yeah. And maybe that's that's perhaps driving the demand from from the industry to, as you say, squeeze every watt out. It's uh, without these tools available, we'd find it very difficult to do. It would certainly be done on a uh, on an experimental basis, which mm. becomes then costing time inefficient. And and actually, I mean, we we have this debate. The experimental basis for machines, in particular, is quite limited. Actually, when you start getting into mm. it, because there's some things that are just very very hard to measure. Um, on an on a running machine um, and instrumenting up a motor is not as easy as you might think because uh, all the noise and things like that to deal with as um, you rotating part as well so getting some of the measurements I, I, it's like some parts of a motor people are just it's it's sort of you know it's like the other side of the universe we kind mm-hmm. of think we know what's happening in there but no one's yeah. ever seen it so no no exactly and temperature varies a lot within a motor so even if you do stick some devices and you, you never really know whether you're you're measuring the hottest part mm. <laughs> you think you're okay but you know you could be 10 millimeters away from from a part that's even hotter and sometimes putting these devices in for example in a slot if you're trying to pack that slot out and get the highest slot fill factor you, you probably don't have room for a, for a, an rtd or a, a thermocouple to be mm. uh, stuck in with the the extra paving that goes in and even then you, you're kind of affecting the thermal performance so yeah, yeah. There's some validation that can be done, but but it is limited. So what are the then? Then you you know obviously you can't talk in specifics about customer projects and stuff, and I, I get that, and I'm sure everyone will. But in general, what kind of trends are you seeing? You know, you must be right at the cutting edge of so mm-hmm. you know. Chris only gets called when we have a big uh, thermofluids problem on an e machine. Yeah. What's what would you say the key trends are that uh, that you're seeing in the market? Uh, yeah, key trends. I suppose direct liquid cooling is becoming in, incredibly more common, and really that's what you have to do if you want to get high bar power density out of the machine. So instead of having a, a water jacket, which is quite common in the 
uh, EV world, yeah. uh, where you have uh, just around the frame, you've got some cooling that's flowing. The heat then still needs to conduct from inside the slot through the stator core uh, to the coolants. So thermally, that's quite a big path. And a lot of the thermal resistance in an electric motor is within the slot itself. Yeah. Because you've got, the, you've got all your conductors in there, but you've actually got quite a lot of insulation, electrical insulation. So the, the, the slot wall liner, some resin inside the slot. So the, the radial conduct, thermal conductivity might only be one or two watts per meter Kelvin, whereas bulk copper is about 380. Wow. So you've really got quite, quite a, a, a big thermal resistance just to get out of the slot and then through the state of back and then to the coolant. So for any super high power application, you've really got to get that coolant to the windings itself. So putting cooling channels in the slots itself. So whether that could be air, that could be, could mm-hmm. be um, liquid. Yeah. Of course, you have to be careful about dielectric. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The liquids of what you're putting through there, you don't want to be sticking water through there, otherwise you get a shock, literally. Yeah. Um, so getting the cooling through there, so uh, and that can be quite tricky to do. Uh, there's a lot of manufacturing issues. We see that on high performance EV electric vehicles as well, but, but particularly in aerospace. Is so there few... another trend in there? Go on, sorry, sorry. No, I was going to say another trend in aerospace is actually going full circle and saying, okay, well. Can we air cool uh, <laughs> our aerospace machine? Because actually, it's a lot, a lot more reliable um, if you, than relying on a, a liquid cooling circuit, uh, which can be prone to failing. Oh, till it sucks in a seagull and. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, there is that. Yeah, ice or icing. The uh, icing inside the machine is a interesting uh, <laughs> phenomena to deal with. Um, mm. I- I was going to say, uh, so on the on direct uh, liquid cooling, so something, you know, see about, um, there's a couple of different approaches. Um, and you mentioned sort of dielectric, so dielectric oil spray inside the machine on you know, directed sprays onto the yeah. end windings um, mm-hmm. or a sort of immersion kind of bath type system mm-hmm. or even um, people passing uh, dielectric through the, the windings themselves is there a do you see a particular trend there or is any you know do you think there's one method that's better than the other there are certainly different methods that are easier to model (laughs) let's put it that way (laughs) so the through cooling if you've got something completely flooded uh, and it's just a single volume uh, single fluid so if you're you're passing liquid through for example Mm. that's quite easy to simulate Spray cooling, we do see that, that it's been around for a while, but yeah. people have not really understood how well it's cooling a machine because you've got two phases. You know, you're spraying it, which has a cooling effect. Mm. You've then got some sort of thin film of this fluid on the, the stator yeah. uh, or, or on the rotor, which is then absorbing some heat. Then you've got the evaporation, yeah. um, So there's a, which, again, that, that's very good at cooling. So spray cooling is common. A lot of the prior work that's been done on it is is kind of experimental based, just to understand what can be done. Because I see it it's very difficult to do with the with the two phases. Um, uh, but but we do see that being used quite a lot. I think immersion is is less so unless you've got that two phase, uh, unless it's actually um, evaporating uh, the liquid. It's really just relying on unnatural convection, so much better to pass the liquid through and then get some forced cooling. Right. 
And then if you're passing, you know, even fairly low viscosity dielectric fluid through a machine, you must start to get some quite complicated things going on in the air gap with, you know, with, with sort of, because you typically a higher performing machine, you would have mm -hmm. tighter and tighter air gap. So, yeah. so what starts to happen in the air gap and, and does some of that offset some of the benefits you might get elsewhere? There are different ways to do the through cooling, and one of the common ways is actually to separate the rotor from the stator, so keep the rotor completely dry, which is useful if you're using permanent magnets or a non-magnetic non-permanent magnetic rotor, where the cooling is perhaps less critical, and then just pass the liquid through the stator. So that usually has a carbon sleeve that passes through the air gap. It has to be quite thin, as you say. Air gaps these machines can be quite tiny. So separating them is the easy way to do it. If you flood the entire machine, the rotor and the stator, we can pass it through, but you start to get windage, uh, an additional windage because this the rotor is spinning, and instead of just rotating against air, it's then got to you know the high viscosity of the liquid uh, creates higher windage. So so that's not often ideal. So these typically these applications do see where it's direct fully flooded where it's just the stator and the spray cooling is far more open and I, I think I, I read that if you flood the rotor to a certain level which is maybe only 10 or 20 percent it has very little effects on the windage loss because the, the the oil gets kind of dissipated throughout the air gap and it doesn't affect it too much the more that you flood the machine the more that starts to has an impact so uh, I think completely flooding the machine is is not ideal mm. uh, and i'm not sure i've seen an application where that's done i've seen one like that um okay yeah and, and in some applications if you're dealing with really high pressures uh, mm -hmm. to, to pressure compensate the motor you you end up having to completely flood it um which is like you say it's it, that's very difficult it makes it tricky mm -hmm. um but it, it it's uh, better than the alternative so yeah okay and then Obviously, we talked there a lot about the stator and, and the air gap and whatnot, but in terms of rotor cooling, um, do you get involved much in terms of looking at sort of thermal simulation on the rotor itself? And is there anything interesting you see with rotor cooling? Yeah, there's a few bits going on with the rotor, and really it depends on what uh, motor technology or architecture you're using. Um, so field-wound rotor where you have got conductors and you're passing current through uh, the rotor to create the magnetic field, you have to treat that very much in the same way as the stator. You, you've got a very strict thermal limit. That's where, beyond that, your insulation starts to break down and uh, and you you get faults. Um, generally, for the higher higher power applications, that's that's not preferred. Perhaps for this perhaps for this reason. Yeah, it's very difficult to cool cool a rotor with liquid uh, directly. Uh, power uh, permanent magnets. They are still temperature fussy. You get them too hot, they're going to demagnetize. Temperature limit is, is certainly higher than it would be for the um, copper wound equivalent. But then there are other technologies like um, switch reluctance machines, which are completely magnetic free. And in these cases, you, you don't need to worry about cooling. Induction as well. You've just got your copper bars going through there. Uh, there's, there's less cooling that's needed on the rotor in that case. So some of the technologies, spray cooling, some is often used on for the higher power applications. This is uh, on these machines. Um, heat pipes used inside the shaft is a clever way of trying to draw draw the machine out. 
But if you consider just a standard e EV uh, machine, which has got the external water jacket, you're kind of just relying on the heat being dissipated to the air inside the motor and then to the casing mm. uh, to be cooled. I have seen, I mean, it's been a big thing where people starting to try and have it, you know, internal liquid cooling um, in in the rotor, and th there's yeah. a number of good examples on that. There's some lovely animations of uh, some of the Audi machines out there where mm -hmm. they show their rotor cooling. Heat, heat pipes is an interesting one where um, I, I'd, you know, sort of my ignorance on a heat pipe, but I'd sort of always assume that a heat pipe would struggle um, in terms of getting the uh, the flow in a heat pipe mm -hmm. with all of the centrifugal forces going on that actually it wouldn't it would sort of not work properly but so so you, you can you can actually embed a heat pipe in a rotor and it'll it'll function yeah it, it does and I think that's probably because centrifugally it's going to act on the, the liquid more than the than the um the vapor aspect mm. so you've got the liquid going one way and the air going the other and the liquid wants to go around on the outside of the heat pipe heat pipe which yeah. is where you have the the wicked inside so i suppose it's flinging flinging out that way uh, and it just needs to get from the hot region to <laughs> just a, a very well cold uh, very well cooled cold region uh, and as long as you've got a big enough temperature difference uh, the yeah that that force overcomes the viscosity effects yeah okay interesting because it, it's um i mean well rotor cooling shaft cooling is easier than rotor cooling and getting you know you tend to have a big thermal mass in the shaft anyway even if you aren't passing yeah. uh liquid through it so anything that can get heat away from your uh your magnets um and uh, your air gap and down into the the shaft could be a good thing to to try Absolutely. yeah cool cool machine better so Oh, okay. So interesting. So, so your sort of big trends then really be be around, um, you know, looking at more uh, intricate direct cooling mechanisms and um, more sort of advanced uh, simulation methods inside the machines, um, yeah. and and doing the coupled uh, simulation work. So, so then kind of looking forwards, uh, I know you've got a few exciting developments happening in your business where you you sort of um, getting involved in new areas and and uh, launching some products and things like that even so what's uh, what what are you kind of excited about moving forwards yeah there is a lot keeping us busy at the moment which is which is really good we're learning a lot from the consultancy projects that, that we have been doing the design services we're doing so if we take one step back just to to, to lay the foundation of, of what's coming forward a lot of the CFD work we do, in fact, most of the simulation work that we do is is not using commercial packages. Yeah. Uh, there's a few strategic reasons why we do that. Um, the, the cost of them is, is certainly one of them or originally one of the, the motivations. But we find uh, creating our own proprietary solvers for things like the thermal modeling tool or for FEA and the CFD, we're using customized versions of, of open source solvers. Uh, so one of the Big ones, the one that we're using for CFDs is Open Foam, um, it is, which has been utilised and harnessed by a lot of the big engineering companies. So um, Audi, BMW are big into using this. It's actually used by all of the Formula One teams for doing their their aerodynamic studies. So there's it is a really is a very mature solver. Yeah, technically equivalent to the the uh, commercial packages. But we decided to use it because it's it's not a black box. We can customize it. We can 
it's highly automatable. So we can set uh, for, for particular applications, you know, if we're doing a lot of electric motors, a lot of rotating machinery. We have scripts or we, we know how to set up a model using that and we can set up maybe five or 10 variations of, of a particular problem uh, with just a few changes and do a parameterized study on that. And we can just set those up to go. They, they run on our cloud computing and we can get the results back very quickly. Right. Uh, and, and that scalability you can't get with commercial CFD uh, yeah. unless you pay for the licenses to run it on at lots and lots of different cores. You can't lots of cores, yeah. yeah. And it, the, 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 the open stuff, though, I mean, I've looked at that in the past and <laughs> I mean, it's not for the faint hearted. <laughs> so <No. laughs> it's, uh, it, it doesn't have a um, it's, it's expert system level basically you, you, you... it is yeah there's there's generally quite a high barrier to get to yeah. technical barrier knowledge barrier let's say to get to use it so i think can't just dip in and out typically so. typically <laughs> run through linux for example but yeah but that's not to put people off a lot of these companies are, are coming over that but but yeah it's, it's not a case of downloading it and, and running a, mm. a cfd model you certainly need to certainly understand cfd and know what you're doing and, and have the time to to make sure um, just set it up and, and run it according to your specific needs. So from that point of view, it's the same as running something on one of the commercial packages. You still need to know how to set up that CFD uh, CFD model. Um, so, and then I suppose coming back to the simulations, one of the one of the things that we're we're doing at the moment is we're creating some new simulation software. Uh, having I having used the open source and our, our proprietary tools for some time now. And speaking to industries, a lot of the people that we speak to in industry share kind of similar, almost frustrations, but, but acknowledge certain barriers to using um, simulation. I think everybody knows that to get, certainly for these high power dents, to get the most out of a, a, a development project, um, you need to use a lot of simulation or you need to, simulation is really at the heart of it. So, um, trying different configurations, different cooling methods, things like that. But there are barriers to using simulations that exist. And it seems it's more in the, the thermal and the CFD world compared to the electromagnetic and the, and the mechanical mm. world. Um, so these cost, these these barriers are things like cost, so the, the initial outlay of the, the CFD license. So if you're quite a small company, yeah. thought of having to outlay, you know, 100 grand or so on, on some software that you're not quite sure how to use, yeah. can be quite daunting. Uh, it's a bit of a, a, a leap of faith. There's the hardware that you need. As I was saying, if you want to run these CFD simulations in quite detail, you can't do that on, certainly can't do it on a laptop. You're not going to do it on a <laughs> You're talking multi-multi-multi-core um, yeah. um, yeah. work, well, not even workstation. It, it, it is sort of server-based uh, dynamic um, processing. The... the mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize that, that, that obviously, you know, there's a lot of huge amount of skill involved in these things, but actually then the cost of, uh, of the hardware that you need, the software that you need. And, and you, you, I think just in case anyone missed it, you know, it, it can be hundreds of thousands of pounds. It's not, not trivial yeah. at all. Um, these kind of setups. So the amount of value that sits in uh, doing these kind of very detailed simulations, you know, you, you've got to be serious to, to want to do it um, and to have that capability in house is, is out of reach of an awful lot of people, which I guess is where is where you guys would come in as a, a service. Absolutely, yeah. So those those really the, the financial and the and the, the hardware barriers. So how do you you know 
do you really want to spend two hundred thousand pounds, for example, before you've got a single simulation result? <laughs> not not many people want to do that. That's a it's a big leap of faith. And even when they've got it, these simulation packages, do they know how to use it? Do they have the right know-how, so the best practices to know how to analyze the results? And how do they choose which software and, and what approach to take? Yeah. And and sometimes that leads to some companies having bad experiences in using software where they think they've got a good design, they've gone and tested it, and uh, it does not behave in real life as as, as the uh, software led them to believe. So that, that means they've lost time and, and investment and some faith in the simulation process. So we're trying to, the simulation platform that we're developing is trying to really at the heart address these issues. We kind of have this affordability, this accessibility and this automation um, at the heart of what we're trying to do. Mm. Um, and so our platform, which uh, is called Kahia, mm -hmm. is it's unlike Kahir. most simulation yeah. platforms. Yeah, that's C-O-H-E-R-E. -E. It's, yeah. it's a web-based platform which tackles one of the accessibility issues. So you don't need to download and export, install um, software to your computer. You can you can access it from a laptop just through a web browser. And also means if you're half the day, half the week working from home, half the week in the office, you're not worried about having to make sure your remote desktop connection is working to, to get back into the office. And if it yeah. falls out, then you, you've got to find something else to do <laughs> yeah. for that time. Yeah. So And, and it also reduces the IT requirements on, you know, within a, organizations and you can easily share design files as well so multiple users can access the same design files we have cloud computing for this the, the simulation so that addresses the hardware issue so you don't need to worry about spending capital expenditure on, on something that can solve your cfd models for example you can just click go when you've got something ready and off it goes to the to the cloud and we build it around workflow templates. So at the moment, we're, we're just addressing electric machines, electric motors. We have aspiration to introduce power converters um, and drives and batteries into it at some point, but we're focusing on motors. And by reducing, let's say, the application that we're trying to do, we can automate a lot of what's going on. So from a CFD point of view, for example, we know what sort of settings to apply depending on the, the size of the motor. We can set up the right turbulence model. We can um, put the right boundary conditions in. So we know a lot of these problems already. And for different types of cooling, different types of applications, we can create different workflows. So someone coming in doesn't need to be an expert in setting up a CFD model. They just need to say, okay, well, this is this is what I want to model. We automate a lot of that process. Therefore, they're, they're on going forwards. Um, and underneath, there are, we are using this open phone, which means we can customize it. Um, to electric motor specifically. Uh, we don't have the licensing overheads that we need to pass on to customers. And it's, it's very scalable as well. So mm. we don't need to worry about having licenses for, for each user and the number of calls that we're, we're running this on. So you're really sort of bringing the, the expert end simulation mm -hmm. software to a more, making it more accessible for a wider audience mm -hmm. and both from a usability point of view with your workflows mm -hmm. and things, but also from a, a cost point of view because you've got a more dynamic uh, pricing model than just the it's everything's up front and uh, you sort of it's almost like pay as you go basically for um, precisely bigger the simulations you're running the more work you do the more you'll pay uh, but if you didn't have to use it for a couple of months then um, you wouldn't or maybe not as much yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right and that suits a lot of companies um, 
smaller companies who have a, a development cycle, they may be wanting to use simulation very intensely for, uh, let's say, a six-month period. And as they go into the manufacturing and prototyping phase, that, that dies off. And once they've got some test results, they want to test it again. So, yeah, the, 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 the amount of the using simulation throughout the year varies very wildly. So they just want to, when they want to use it, pay for what they need at the time. Mm. Okay, yeah. And this is a, so is, is, is Cohere launched then as a product? So can people go and um, subscribe to this or are you about to launch it or what's the status? It, it's very close. So actually, we, we there's going to be three simulation models. We've talked about thermal resistance model, which is the um, more reduced, it makes assumptions on, on cooling, but it's still an incredibly useful tool. So that's going to be re- released in March okay. uh, 2012. And that will be available then March 22. Later in the year. Yeah, March 2012. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the correction. March 22. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's good, but it's not that good, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we'll be releasing that in March 2022. Yeah. Uh, we have the 3D thermal FDA, which adds a bit of accuracy and detail. Um, that will be released uh, in, in the next few months as well. And then the computational fluid dynamics, which is the real key bits, that will be slightly later in the year as well. So we're releasing uh, the technology, I suppose, in, in complexity order. Uh, so if you go to the website, kahir-sim, uh, you can click to to be notified on updates and as we're releasing things and let us know if you're, you're interested in uh, having a demo or seeing what the platform is all about. Uh, so just just follow the, the link okay. to kahir-sim.com. I'll put some links in the show notes um, for people. So, that, uh, you know, uh, regular listeners will know that there are notes that go with the episodes that um, I'll put. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile um, mm-hmm. so people can connect with you directly, the company website, uh, for both both companies. Um, and... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then then people can do that and a, and a bit of a uh, bit of blurb. So uh, that that's been brilliant, Chris. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Um, I've noticed uh, that's that's all we've got time for today, basically. So um, if we we'll kind of bring it to an end there. But uh, that's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Wonderful. No, it's been really good. Thank you. I think we probably could have uh, done another few hours on um, thermal simulation and, and fluidic simulation in machines. Uh, it's it's just it's such a big topic, isn't it? absolutely maybe offline <laughs> yeah brilliant or maybe in maybe maybe a part two <laughs> cool. yeah. look forward to it all right thanks chris <laughs> thanks Brian.